So imagine if your doctor called you and she says, oh, come in, I need to talk to you about those tests we did. You go there, she sits you down, looks you in the eye, pulls out the scan, puts it on the light box, points to a big black lumpy mass and says, and that's the reason that even with aggressive treatment, you've probably got about five years to live. Imagine what those five years might be like and how would her prognosis affect your choices about what you did and didn't want to do with your day? How would it affect how you see things? A beautiful blue sky, the smell of a lovely flower, the giggle of a child, some good or bad news. Now imagine, if you will, that you chose to have an incredible life at the same time as knowing that information. What would that be like? And what would it be like if now you're living on the other side of that five-year mark? What would every extra minute, second, hour, day be like? This is exactly the experience of my guest this week, Tim Baker, a world-renowned surfing journalist and acclaimed author. His new book is called Patting the Shark. If you remember what Mick Fanning did in South Africa to a great white that grabbed his board, this is Tim literally wondering, what would life be like if he chose to live along Live alongside and, and maybe even embrace that shark. Give it a bit of a pat. It's a brilliant conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, some ads. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If survival was my only goal, then I was always going to be sweating on every blood test and every scan, and I just couldn't see how any peace lay down that path. And so I guess I just had this realisation, and I'd done a, a bit of reading, a few kind of Buddhist texts that really helped me. If the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die and I'm okay with that, then I'm okay. And sure, I want to live as long as I can and live well, but I don't want to be in fear. That is journalist 
and author Tim Baker. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome. Thanks for being here. This is better than yesterday. This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to try to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show will give you just a little, oh, <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's the noise I make when the people talk to me. <laughs> and the rest of my day is, is actually pretty good. And I turn around and go, you know what? Today was better than it was the day before. I've been doing this since 2013. And I'm so grateful that I get to do it here with you. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest, and Fridays, it's just you and me. I am Osher Ginsberg. Hi. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I am, as far as the Australian Industry Publication Media Week is concerned, the sixth most star powerful person full of star power in Australia, which I can't believe because there's some unbelievable people either side of me. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. But yeah, you listening to this podcast helped that happen. It's the first time I've ever won a solo award. I got given it uh, just the other day on Friday. And um, I've never won a solo award. If you don't count the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards Best Burp Blimp or the 2004 Cochlea Bachelor of the Year, like both of those things, yes, they were awards, but they weren't for my work. This is for my work. And it's an industry award as is seen by the the business end of the industry that I work in, not so much the creative end. And that's a huge honor, an amazing honor. And I'm I'm so freaking grateful for it. It was really, really lovely actually. I was so grateful that Audrey and I got to go. It was really nice. Um anyway. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Discord if you want to have a chat. The link is in the show notes. So if you open your podcast app and you look in the show notes, you'll see a link for Discord. I popped one up there on Friday, and it was really nice to welcome all the new people that showed up. That was really lovely. There's a new link in there, but as on Friday, it's only going to work for the first couple of people that click on it because as, you know, people come in, we're going to give people time to get to know each other and say, hi, this is who I am, this is what I do. And that's great. So if if you find that link, you can click on it, and if you get through to the server, then great, you're in. If not, it's cool. I'll I'll give you another link on on Wednesday. Discord is, if you've not used Discord before, it's, it's a way that we can connect that uh, doesn't go through an algorithmic pipe or a pay-per-view kind of pipe or um, uh, anything that kind of feeds your brain with uh, kind of possible negati- negativity. It's, just, it's the same as you know any other social photo and video sharing platform the ones that have a huge presence in all of our lives, but it's without all the videos that are pushed at us and almost the coerced engagement and the kind of fear as a way to engage. Anyway, it's great. I'm having some great conversations and there's lots of great chat about the Zach Jones episode going on in there. I look forward to talking to you about the conversation I'm about to have today. We can also talk about Friday's episode, which is really fun, and Dad Pod that I'm doing with Charlie Clawson. There's a lot to talk about and it's nice to chat with people who listen to the show for me, and it's nice to watch other people who listen to the show chat with each other. Yeah, it's really cool. So you can find that link on uh, in the show notes. And don't worry. Yes, it's a, it's a new platform. You don't have to download it, but I'd just rather have a bit more control over how I connect with the people that 
want to connect with me. And I'm finding Discord is it. So let me tell you about my guest today. Tim Baker is a globally renowned uh, surf journalist. He's an author and he's someone who's, his words have really shaped the narrative around surfing in not only our country of Australia, but around the world for, for decades now. His books really are the pillars of surf history and the surfing personalities in Australia, Oki, uh, high surf, a century of surf, many, many more. His writing embodies the journey of surfing from uh, almost a countercultural pastime through to gigantic board and clothing manufacturers worth billions of dollars through to surfers today who are unbelievably gifted, but really kind of shun the competitive aspect of the sport and instead embrace the exploration and the spiritual experience that comes with being present in the moment, bobbing around on a board out in the ocean breathing, just waiting for the next wave. Tim was living the dream. A beautiful family, a lifetime of exotic travel under his belt, a family home walking distance to top quality waves that he could surf. And then one day in July of 2015, out of the blue, Tim was diagnosed with stage four metastatic prostate cancer. His story of a descent into the debilitating world of aggressive cancer treatment and his fight for survival is just absolutely brilliant. He was given just five years to live, and Tim found a way to be with the diagnosis, to be with the fear, to choose to enjoy his life, his family, and indeed each day, and have the, this aggressive medical timeline, which was counting down his days. Tim chose a path forward filled with empathy for his carers who would often be just burned out and hollow people after just hours and days and years of essentially carrying the burden of their patient's imminent death with them. It'd be hard to be an oncologist. Tim chose a path where he allowed himself to be empowered enough to seek out different pathways of treatment. Now, as you know, I lost my mum to cancer about five years ago. So much of what Tim spoke about was incredibly familiar. And if you've been through or you're going through something similar, this is simply a chat you've got to hear because Tim is choosing to pat the shark instead of punch the shark. The book is called Patting the Shark. It's out now. There's a link in the show notes. Enjoy this chat with Tim Baker. Tim, it's... Uh Thanks for being on the show, mate. I really appreciate yeah, it. Nice yeah, my to, pleasure. Nice to see you. And I, I don't want to start on a bummer note, but I'm sure you knew Davo, and I'm I'm mm. I'm sorry because you would have worked closely with him over the years and watched his career rise. And not far from where you are right now, he was the victim of like pretty horrible violence, and he died. This extraordinary surfer with an yeah, amazing yeah. legacy and um that must be a, a difficult thing to go through in the in the community that is quite close of people who have been and around competitive surfing for so long yeah yeah it's super sad news i mean i wasn't especially close to dave i would you know run into him off and on over the years but it's interesting you bring it up because i just started writing a column called um the, the long history of australian surfing's flawed heroes mm. because you know it, it, it's sad, but then it kind of makes me angry too because there's this kind of highway littered with casualties yeah. and I think sometimes surfing has celebrated that dysfunction and that, you know, the drugs and alcohol and, yeah. you know, picks up kids when they're hot and they move units for sponsors and then, 
when they no longer move units, they're just cast aside, you know. It reminded me of when, you know, people who buy a cute puppy for Christmas and then by Easter they don't want it, you know. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, but it keeps happening and we yeah. don't seem to learn from it. It, it is it is difficult. And I, I was talking with a mate about it the other day. Um, to, I, I only even know of his day. It was Chris, wasn't it? Oh. Yeah. Um, mm. He came out of the kind of the crew of like extraordinarily gifted Narrabeen surfers. There was yeah, just this yeah. moment that happened in Narrabeen. It happens a few times, but there was just moment. Oddly coincidental with certain cyclone swells, there's the right amount of time of a yeah, summer yeah. where <laughs> a kid has enough time to spend enough time in the waves to get as good as and just kind of have this leapfrog above others. And there was another thing that happened in Coolangatta in the late 90s, yep. early 2000s. Um, yep. And he was a part of this crew of surfers, but Narrabeen in northern the northern beaches of Sydney is also known for this kind of almost archaic, weird, brutal Lord of the Flies kind of mm. male-dominated, violent kind of culture. I mean, they had a thing called the Gromit Cage at the surf club. I never forget yeah, it. Yeah, where yeah. they go, I know that, and they would go, ha ha ha. That's where you lock the eight-year-old or ten-year-old kids who dropped in on us in. Like mm. it was there for you know stray dogs, but they were like, "What the fuck is that?" And yeah, that's, yeah. that sort of brutal. shit follows you through life. You know, if you are mm. all a crew of people moving together in a cohort around the world as you advance through the world of, you know, either free surfing or competitive surfing, that kind of shit is hard to escape from. And it's interesting you're right talking about that column because with I can't stop thinking about Mark Richards, who at 27 or 28 was probably the most professional focused, you know, mindset mm. surfer ever, ever to stand on a board and went, mm. and everyone was like, what do you mean you're starting a shaping business? What do you mean you're, and he was like, oh, I guess I'm too serious for this. And he left. And now Kelly yeah. Slade is 50 with 11 world titles, yeah. you know, like yeah. the two most professional people ever. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Oh, yeah, I love him. I just think that's such a class act. And people talk about Kelly's record, 11 yeah. world titles or whatever it is now, can't even keep count. But no one will ever challenge MR's record, which is a 100% success rate. He only did the tour for four years and won the world title four times and walked away. <laughs> he's the Heather McKay of surfing. Uh, yeah. Heather, yeah. Heather, Heather McKay, the Australian squash championship who went, champion. She went 19 years with yeah. never being defeated. Never. Not once wow. Not once did she lose a game. It's Australian, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest athletes in Australia ever, yeah. all time. And no one knows her name because it was a uh, amateur sport for women, unfortunately, at the time. Mm. But, yeah, MR, undefeated. What surf has ever been undefeated? Not yeah. fucking no one. Even and then came out of came out of retirement, won those Billabong Pros at Huge Waimea and Sunset. Yeah, yeah, amazing, Just, amazing. Mm. I'm I'm wondering. I was around the Pro Tour uh, of surfing for a little while, but it was during my drinking years, Tim. So I don't know mm. if we have met before. No, I don't. I don't recall. It's weird because you know when you've been on telly, I guess people <laughs> feel like they know you, right? You know, but yeah, I don't think we have. But, Maybe I don't know. Did you go to any of those um, crazy Coke? contest coca-cola contest presentation nights at the metropolis in north sydney when like martin potter won and went no on a mad no i was more bender. uh i uh the kind of big events i was at was um north shore pipe end of 20 2003 pro juniors started 2004 um yeah. i was at chopo in 2003 kind of around around that so i, I don't know yeah. if we, we were we might have been in the no, same place that time, but I all protecting each other. Yeah, but I, I, you know, you you write a book about Mark Okalupo. I work quite closely with him because we were working the 
TV network I was working with at the time I had a deal with Billabong, so we, were, mm. we worked quite quite closely with Oki for quite a while there, and a few of those those stories. And I, I found it just you know really really interesting. But you know, growing up as a, well, we're here to talk about integrative cancer treatment, which is really <laughs> important talks, and we'll something talk surfing and guitars. Well, it's something that um, <laughs> something about uh, you know that I really uh, feel quite strongly about having you know mm. seen other mates and relatives go through prostate cancer treatment and the various choices they made through treatment and the various outcomes because of those choices. Uh, but also as someone who's very much uh, a fan of uh, patient advocacy and mm. being your own case leader when you can be, uh, mm. which is something I know you did. So I do definitely want to talk about that, but there's too much about surfing. That is, I think it's <laughs> because it paints the picture of what put you in the mindset to get you in those those places mm. are okay mm. so you you grew up in what part of the world did you grow up in in uh, melbourne in the eastern suburbs of melbourne long way from the beach no kind of surfing pedigree i always say uh, i've got um french president francois Mitterrand to thank for becoming a surfer how's, because, how's um, that he was he was doing that the nuclear testing in the south pacific yes he was my family were traveling back from Canada to Australia and we were going to stop over in Tahiti, but Qantas were no longer stopping in Tahiti because of the French nuclear testing. So we stopped in Hawaii instead and had the full like Brady Bunch in Hawaii experience where my, my big brother had surfing lessons and got smitten. And so when we got back to suburban Melbourne, we started holidaying down the coast and I caught the bug, highly contagious that it is. Yeah. And, uh, Wow, and we we're old men, and there's mm. USB powered heated wetsuits that exist now. But w- <laughs> we're talking a time when a wetsuit that could keep you literally alive uh, in the Great Southern Ocean off the mm. bottom there of Victoria was really prohibitively expensive for a kid. Even in summer, it's cold as shit. Yeah, Th- that must have been tricky to to deal with. Yeah, I remember my first wetsuit was this horrible kind of O'Neill like diving wetsuit with this kind of diagonal zip down the front that you kind of laid across and was really uncomfortable. But then, yeah, gradually, you know, worked my way up to a, a Rip Curl Dawn Patrol. And it's funny you bring up wetsuits because I can picture them all. Yeah. My early wetsuits, clear as day, the colour scheme and the fit and the, the stiff rubber, you know, but trying to paddle in them. If you're from Victoria, oh, if you're trying to surf out of Melbourne, that is, mm. if you don't have a wetsuit, you can borrow a board. Mm. But you're putting on someone else's wetsuit that's been peed in and all this kind of yeah. stuff. You know, it's like this most precious thing you can, you can have and you'll use it until it falls to pieces. Yeah, yeah. And you know, they give you these horrible rash under yeah. the arms and yeah. other more delicate body parts. And <laughs> yeah. You just smear Vaseline all over yourself to try and stop the rash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so obviously your parents, it's an effort. If you're in the suburban mm. Melbourne, to go surfing is an effort. Mm. It's a, The roads are way better now, but it would yeah. have been a mission, like at least an hour and a half, two hours to get anywhere near where the kids can paddle in. What were your parents' vibe on, on you and your brother getting in the water? Oh, look, they weren't especially enthusiastic about it because it, it was still in the days when surfing was seen as a road to drug addiction and delinquency. You know, I remember... A friend of ours had a board shaped by Morris Cole and he'd just got busted for a small amount of hashish and went to Pentridge Prison for two years. Oh, yeah. Stripped of his Victorian titles and, you know, it confirmed every parent's worst fears that surfers were a bunch of drug addicts. And I remember looking at this friend of mine's board and going, wow, that was shaped 
guy who's now in jail. It's pretty. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and at the time, surfing uh, also came. It came with its own starter pack. It came with a haircut, mm. and it came with at the time records. What was the music that came with this for you, Tim? Mm, that's an interesting question. I'm going to have to really think about that because surfing and music almost existed in two different worlds for me because, yeah, the other thing I was really into was guitar and, and playing music. And, um, yeah, I guess Midnight Oil yeah. was early surf music for me. Yeah. Um, Sunny Boys. Yeah. Um, Hoodoo Gurus. Yeah. And, you know, a bit later, you know, Bands like Ganga Jan got used in all those Quicksilver videos. Right. And a lot of time it was it was the bands that got used in surf movies that yeah. just got that. So um, what's, what's interesting is you just you just mentioned four Australian bands in a row. Mm. I've got two kids, one's three, one's 18 and a half. You know, and if mm. I asked her, you know, mm. what's the music that's currently shaping your 18-year-old journey, yeah. there wouldn't be one Australian artist in it. Mm. It, it's yeah it's i think it's a pretty rich time for australian music you know and yeah and songs um, songs that definitely describe you just you know you you mentioned four bands there that describe a, a particular time in australian culture when mm. there was we, we were i guess a little more isolated culturally from the rest of the world mm. and the music at the time was reflecting what was going on most definitely with um you know sunny boys and um even more with Midnight, Midnight Oil singing songs about nuclear testing, without a doubt. You know, that mm. was all going on. It was really powerful and really intense because that was right when Australia was kind of shifting from, you know, Britain to America, which we somehow forgot over the last three weeks when apparently something <laughs> big happened in, in the UK. Lovely like, old lady. She passed was. away. I can't mm. – eh, something anyway. But, yeah, <laughs> that, that was all – it was all on and surfing and activism and environmental activism were all – kind of quite enmeshed because mm. uh, there was a heap of tourism money coming in and people wanting to put a club med in Byron Bay and high rises all over the coast where you are now up in you know, yeah, yeah. You're, you're in north coast New South Wales and surfers largely led those fights which is kind of interesting that that you know protecting those surf breaks and protecting those estuary mm. systems that created these beautiful places yeah um, I mean it's kind of ironic because we we also sort of led the developers and the hordes to these beautiful places. Yeah. You know, we colonised Margaret River and Noosa and Angari and the Gold Coast. And they, they say the surfers came and then, uh, yeah, the hordes followed. <laughs> yeah. You, know? you only have to stroll down Steminyak to know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It's, uh, it's wild. You know, you watch a, that classic uh, movie, The Morning of the Earth, and you, you, you mm. see there's a, one or two shots of the clifftops and you're like, well, it doesn't look like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like a Hilton Hotel hanging off the edge. and Oh, uh, my God. I went to Bali for the first time in about 20 years in 2017, and I went out to Uluwatu, and I was just – it was unrecognisable. I was yeah. so disoriented. I just could not get my bearings because there was nothing familiar. There yeah. were no familiar landmarks. Like the whole contour and geography of the place had been completely obscured by all these hotels and bars and – yeah, yeah. Incredible. We could talk. We could talk about mm. the the benefits for the you know lifting a, a local uh, essentially you know subsistence farming culture out of 
you know, the edge of poverty and giving them access to healthcare and education through tourism. But that's a whole other story. But I'm sure, yeah. you know, it goes hand in hand with with, with your work. At what point did uh, surfing look like it was going to become a career? Because surfing, it's one of the most bananas things. There's, I mean, at the time, yeah. there's anywhere between 48 and 50 something. It's, Formula One, I think, is a, the, the shitter one. There's mm. 22 or 24 drivers. That's it. Mm. Surfing is, I think, is forty eight or or something crazily. So it's a tiny amount mm. considering mm. how many board shorts are sold each year. The amount of surfers yeah. that actually go on tour, it's really limited. So as far as a career, uh, when did that start becoming a possibility? Uh, it was it was pretty ridiculous, really. I mean, I, I got a traditional uh, newspaper cadetship at the old Melbourne Sun. And I, you know, as I said, I got smitten with surfing. And so, you know, one of the first things I did at the newspaper as a lowly cadet was start pestering my chief of staff to write a surfing column. And they, um, they sort of begrudgingly agreed. And then, you know, as I got a bit bolder a couple of years in, I convinced them to send me down to Bells Beach to cover the annual Rip Curl Pro. And I've got a favourite anecdote about going to Bells for the first time as a reporter and bumping into a reporter from our sister afternoon newspaper back when afternoon newspapers were a thing, um, the Herald, and he was a police reporter. <laughs> and I was like, mate, what are you doing here? Like I could I could file for the Herald if you need a story and also you're on police rounds. Why are you covering a surfing contest? And he said, oh, you know, it's a bit of a slow Easter. I thought I'd come down and see if there was a drug bust <laughs> or a riot at the Torquay Hotel. And it's always stuck with me now that Rip, the Rip Curl Pro is one of the five landmark sporting events in Victoria every year. That in 1985, <laughs> which isn't that long ago, no. it was still regarded as a potential crime scene <laughs> rather than a sporting event, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and so that that went, obviously that started to, you know, become a, a bigger and bigger thing for you. When did you make the leap out of newspapers? Uh, I saw an ad in my uh, copy of Tracks magazine in early 1986 asking for applicants for the associate editor's position. Wow. And uh, I thought, you know, Tim Baker from Blackburn ain't getting a job at Tracks. I mean, you know, Nick Carroll was the editor and I knew he was Tom Carroll's brother and Phil yeah. Jarrett had been my first surfing literary hero. And these guys were celebrities as much as the pro surfers in my world. Yeah. And there was no way that I was getting a job at Tracks, but um, I sent in an application anyway, literally with as much expectation as buying a scratchy from <laughs> the newsagent, yeah. you know, just full Hail Mary. And unbeknownst to me, Tracks had been bought by a mainstream publisher, this very urbane Englishman named Philip Mason, who also published Australian Playboy and Australian Cricket and all these sort of mainstream magazines. Mm and dragged the tracks crew from their beach house in Whale Beach <laughs> into downtown Darlinghurst in Crown Street. Yeah. And he, and he had um, declared that they hire a, a proper journalist who could surf a bit rather than a proper surfer who could write a bit. <laughs> and, and, that, and that was, that was how I got the job. It's fascinating. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about off air, we talked a little about luck and, you know, you can define luck in, in many ways, but for me, it's always been where where hard work and preparation meet opportunity. I love that saying. It's funny you bring that up. It was I saw it painted on the side of a car once, and it just hit me between the eyes. Yeah. And um, words to live by, I reckon. I've had 
multiple examples mm. through my life. The yeah. serendipity of that moment, you cannot possibly plan for. And it's completely, mm. completely out of your control. Yet, going through our life, we can just, if we have this idea of like, I want to make this my job or I want to mm. become an engineer for something or I want to work in hydrology or I want to be a chef, you can just, you can take responsibility for how ready you are. Yeah, you yeah know? totally. And that can give you agency and drive and direction and focus and you can be free to make mistakes without, without high mm. stakes. Yeah. And then if you eventually make yourself just undeniable when the choice comes and your name happens to be there some fluke but you do have to throw you do have to throw the grass into the wind a bit you do have yeah, to yeah, yeah. you yeah. do have to get up there and you know in my own story i i just wrote letters to every radio station in the city you know mm. and someone went i remember that bloke he used to be a roadie at the club i worked at let's get him in and that was it <laughs> yeah you know i just ha- it just no one's going to know that you're ready so you do mm. have to take that step and you do have to look for those moments of serendipity and try to increase those moments, but you've got to spend a time getting ready. No one's going to come knock on your door going, mate, we'd like to make you the uh, chief of the biggest surfing magazine in Australia, please. Uh, yeah, yeah, we yeah, came yeah, and totally. found you. Nobody knew yeah. that you could do it. You have yeah. to, it's really, really important. And, you know, as you said, it's happened heaps in your career, but stay, mm. staying ready, what, what is staying ready or, or, or staying prepared or, you know, what does that do for you in the moment between those jobs? Oh, well, I think you just do the thing that's in front of you as well as you can do it. And you can have yeah. these distant lofty goals. And I think sometimes we get caught up, you know, shooting for the stars and trying to manifest these really grand, you know, ambitions. But, you know, in reality, it's often just a series of small steps. And so you just, you do the next thing that's in front of you to the best of your ability and just be all in and super committed. And, and they're, they're not like little pavers, you know, like little garden stepping stones that kind of lead you along the path where you want to go. That's how I look at it. You've had such a successful career as a journalist and as an author. Um, I, I owned uh, High Surf. <laughs> I loved it. It was such yeah. a great, such a great book. Um, Thank you. You wrote the book about Oki, which uh, Mark Ocalupo is one of the more interesting Australian athletes uh, that um, – yeah. He's an extraordinary human. And, he absolutely is, yeah. And what makes him who he is and how he is who he is 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 worth exploring. Uh, mm. We do hear a lot about other Australian athletes, whether they be, you know, race car drivers or cricketers or whatever, but there's something about Mark Ocalupo. Uh, there's, yeah. ve- there's very few sports at the A level of a sport where you can actually die trying to win. Mm. And mm. surfing is like Formula One has so many safety things in there, it's mm. really unlikely. But yeah. surfing, you can li- you could die really easily. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's not just the waves; it's no. the sharks. You know, like it's like having a crocodile wander onto Centre Court Wimbledon. You know, like, <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. it's so true. It's it's mm. so true. Over the, I'm interested to know as someone who's probably seen more elite athletes come and go and face extraordinary challenges, um, whether it be someone like Mick Fanning with the mm. unbelievably heavy personal stuff that he went mm. through, and not only with himself but in his family. It's all quite mm. do- well documented. I'm not saying anything out of school. Sure. Um, but, you know, also, you know, seeing what was going on with, you know, as as Lane Beachley was trying to push and, and push for parity and, and prize money and stuff like that. Is there a commonality that you saw amongst those athletes in surfing that, you know, carried with the people that eventually held those trophies aloft? Yeah, I always remember something Rabbit 
said to me, Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew, 1978, world champion. I mean, I know you know that, but for the benefit of your listeners, because he was, he was, his was the first biography I wrote. And so, you know, that will always be such a special experience for me. But Rabbit once said to me, you know, you look at this sort of pantheon of great Australian surfers and most of them had a bit of an axe to grind with life. Mm. You know, they, they came from broken homes or some sort of dysfunctional family life and they were kind of pissed off and they let it all out in the water. And, I mean, we talked about Davo earlier and he was, he was a bit like that but just somehow never found the kind of scaffolding to keep him on track. But, yeah, a lot of those great surfers, MR is probably the exception, super stable, super yeah. supportive family life, really yeah. wholesome, you know. But you look at the, a lot of the others, Oki, Gary Elkerton, Barton Lynch, Tom Carroll, a lot of them lost parents or I, I was just writing and researching about a guy named Kevin the Head Brennan from Bondi who was really the first original Australian surfing casualty you know, at Bondi when it was considered Scum Valley and died a sad, junky death after being the best surfer in the country, you know. So it's a fine line between, yeah, yeah, those guys who've been able to harness that, whatever that sort of emotional drive and often pain is and and the ones for whom it just, just pulled them under, you know. There is the the concept of using emotional energy, negative emotional energy, and mm. harnessing it for your own good is mm. a, a very powerful one. And mm. I'm sober, Tim. I'm 12 years sober. Mm. And I, I once heard somebody say to me, someone from that community, say to me, "I've got this brain that refuses to see the world in any other way except this thing. So instead of alcohol, I chose to make." this particular aspect of their career, that thing. And now I'm unstoppable because I have used this thing that I cannot not do and Mm. I've refocused it. And this person is now on like the, the, the perfect tale of, of sobriety that I didn't believe was true when I first got sober. That's a huge thing. Sometimes it takes work, but if you can do that, you're absolutely right, Tim. You free yourself. Every time someone fucks you off, you're like, actually, thank you for that because now my body is full of, I've felt like I've just drunk a triple espresso and I'm <laughs> going to use this and I'm going to do yeah. something good for me and my family mm-hmm. versus scream at you because that's just a waste yeah. of time. And, you know, this, you, you've, you wrote, you've written so many books, you know, kids, kids books that have been turned into stage plays and made yeah. kids summer holidays, you know, the surfer, <laughs> and the, the surfer and the mermaid played out all over the country. Like must've been amazing. You were in your, you were in your late forties when your health kind of took a bit of a turn. What was the, what was the lead up to that? And what was the first kind of moment that you knew something was up? I just turned 50 when um, my wife had sort of mentioned I was getting up to go to the toilet during the night more frequently. And um, I just thought that was one of the things that happened as you got older, you know. And then I was in uh, California doing some work on a series of sort of online documentaries. And uh, I was at the offices of a place called Surfline, who were the sort of pioneers of modern surf forecasting. And it was one of those offices where you had to get a key from reception to go to what Americans call the restroom. Mm-hmm. And um, I was having to ask for this key so frequently it was getting embarrassing, you know. So I just started hanging around outside the men's room waiting for someone else to go in or out so I could just slip in. And I thought, this is kind of weird. So, yeah, I got home and went to have the post-turning 50 checkup 
and you know had the the digital examination which i would like to reassure men is no big deal and everyone when they turn 50 should do it and if you've got a family history of prostate cancer you should probably do it from age 40 and he Hang on, let's just let's just back let's just back that up a bit and i mean <laughs> that literally because yeah, yeah. it's, it's something that i've had a number of times and i've, I've mm. worked closely with movember on and off over the years quite intensely uh for a while i was made a podcast friend for a little while but for a long time m- men were really reluctant to get their prostate checked because it meant someone else having their finger in their bottom yeah. and what would you say to men who might be afraid of that um, it doesn't hurt and it doesn't call your sexuality into question um, and it could save your life. And that's really the thing, isn't it? That's mm. We were talking about the kind of weird, toxic, blokey surf culture before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if I have a doctor trying to keep me alive and part of that is they put their finger in my bum, mm. it, doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that I am a heterosexual man. Exactly. That's it. It's yeah. f- fine. That's <laughs> completely fine. It's not, you know, I wouldn't queue up for it, but um And I yet every I'd... every woman listening to us now is going, you fucking lightweights. Have you ever heard of a pap smear? Like yeah. <laughs> do they have a pair of barbecue tongs up your cloaca? Uh, no. Yeah. Like it's mm. very God. quick. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But yeah, blokes get very, very weird about it. Yeah. And but even mm. so, like now you could there's a there's a blood test you can do. That mm. can give you the indicator of if you need to even have that. So you can do, you can just get a blood test uh, yeah. to check yeah. a certain blood level if if that indicates something along those yeah. lines, which is even more amazing. So you you go to the you go and have your post fifty checkup, which is incredible in our country of Australia. We have healthcare that's accessible mm. and and incredible. free if you need it. Yeah. We do not do not appreciate that enough because there are plenty of countries where that doesn't happen. And mm. so you have this uh, checkup, and okay, I'll call you with the results. What were those days like? Did you have an inkling that something might have been up? Uh, yeah, a, f- a couple of months before I'd been getting some pain in my leg, my right thigh, and it just sort of came and went over mm. a few days and I, so I didn't think too much about it. But then things, as when I went for that checkup, things moved quite quickly. Yeah. Um, the GP registered concern from the digital examination that the prostate was enlarged and it was hard, which are not good signs, but I didn't mm-hmm. really know what that meant. Yeah. Um, so I went for an um, ultrasound and a PSA test, and then yep. I was referred to a urologist. And um, I had a referral to see the urologist in about a week's time, and I got a call from their receptionist sounding very kind of worked up, very urgent. We've had a, we've had a um, cancellation this afternoon. We can see you this afternoon. Please come straight in. And I was like, oh, okay, why? Anyway, so I remember going in and and he said to me, the the blood test you mentioned is called a a PSA test or a prostate-specific antigen test, which Mm. is an enzyme that your prostate secretes and if there's too much of it, then something's awry. And I remember he said to me, "A, a normal PSA is three or less, it really starts ringing alarm bells for us. If it hits 10, uh, yours is 120. Fucking hell. And um, What happens I, in your body when you hear that? I, I remember this sort of rising, it's like a rising sense of dread just kind yeah. of moving up your body. And I, I actually had to get him to repeat. I said, can you just say that again for me? 
Yeah. And he repeated it. And, I, and um, yeah, then it was just referrals for more tests, bone scans, MRIs, and then uh, agonising sort of two-week wait for all those results to come in, in which time, of course, I'm furiously consulting Dr. Google and trying to reassure myself that, you know, a PSA test is, um, you know, not completely reliable, that it can just indicate some sort of benign enlargement yeah. of the prostate or an infection or something. What are the conversations, and, what are conversations you're having with your family? Uh, well, the only person who I really spoke to about it at that point was my wife because I thought there's no point alarming everyone until we know exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Um, How did she take it? Because that's a it's not just a one-person, mm, you know, illness. No. And, and prostate cancer specifically is often spoken of as a couple's disease. Because well it does and truly. Impact we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, look, she was trying to be reassuring. She's a, she's an acupuncturist and has a health science degree as well as a traditional Chinese medicine qualification. So, yeah. you know, she was trying to reassure me. But I think we both, as we kind of got into it, it's kind of like the higher the PSA score is, the more likely it is something sinister, not just some sort of benign, yeah. you know, issue that can be easily resolved. And then we, yeah, we went back to see the urologist and um, I just remember him putting this bone scan up on that one of those wall-mounted light boxes and there was just this enormous kind of white smudge where my right femur or thigh bone should have been and he sort of indicated it with his pen and said, well, this more or less confirms our suspicions. And it's, it's hard to describe that moment I think um, in the book I talk about it being like a, a you know like a needle stuck in a record or this like feedback loop of dissonance like this can't be happening this is happening this can't be happening this is happening just your mind is just kind of not able to compute what is going on because surely this can't be my fate and I remember I was trying to gather my thoughts and my wife said can we just back up for a moment are you saying that's cancer in tim's leg and he said yes he didn't and, say the word uh not initially he, he wow. just at that point all he said was this more or less confirms our suspicions which you know i knew what that meant but yeah. um yeah, isn't that fascinating it though it's still mm, this this word that we daren't say yeah yeah and you know i I've written this book as part of a creative writing PhD in, mm. in an act of blind optimism that, yeah. you know, to begin a, a, a PhD five years into a five-year predicted survival time is probably the definition of optimism. But, yeah, I'm really interested in the language of cancer that, yeah. and that's kind of my um, PhD topic is uh, towards a new language of cancer to try Tim, and take. it's extraordinary having that take on this because both my parents were doctors and mm. I, these two medical professionals, my mom was an anaesthetist who retrained as a GP and an acupuncturist. My father mm. was a rheumatologist. Uh, Mum's passed away. And I remember mum saying something about, oh, the neighbour down the road, it's the big C. It's like, mm. you're a fucking doctor. And yeah. even she daren't speak you know, yeah, yeah. she daren't speak this thing. It's like the it's, other C word. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, yeah. it, it so is. It so mm. is. And it's, it. boy, 
I'm glad mm. you were not alone in that that room. What yeah. ha- like what what do you go get well, lunch? What happens after that? Uh, I mean, this is this is part of my gripe with the health system. I, I remember um, my wife was just gripping my hand so tight. I thought she was going to break my fingers. She yeah. just, and the last time she did that was when she was giving birth to yeah. our children in this same hospital. Wow. And um, as, I, as I write in the book, you know, they were both cases of um, little clusters of cells dividing that had brought us here, you know. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, like new life and a threat yeah. to my life. I mean, oh, my God. Really kind of That's poetic, slaps you mate. in the face with, I don't know, the nature of our, our sort of uh, fragile existence, I guess. What's it like? Do they like hand you a pamphlet and go, oh, here's, here's, here's a number to call? Or do they go, okay, I'll line you up with this psychologist and that therapist and these, like what happens? Well, no, they, um, they say we're going to, well, in this case he said um, we're going to refer you to an oncologist who can yeah. talk to you about further treatment options. Yeah. We'll get you started on hormone therapy straight away. I mean, no discussion, no sort of concept of informed consent warning you what this treatment involves yes um just very perfunctory as if there isn't even a decision to be made we'll get you started on hormone therapy straight away Um, we'll refer you to an orthopedic surgeon in case that leg requires pinning for a what he called a pathological fracture which didn't sound good um and so handed me some scripts for gnarly painkillers and these referrals and then we went out we just stepped out of his office back into the reception where the world appeared to be just going about its business as it had been 15 minutes earlier Holy with, shit. you know, elderly people thumbing trashy magazines and watching daytime television and uh, a receptionist um, who made a couple of appointments for me and um, then gave me a handy brochure called Understanding Prostate Cancer which um, gave me a wonderful bit of advice that I should get the most out of life by playing with my grandchildren (laughs) because prostate cancer was considered an old man's disease. At 50, I was considered very young to be diagnosed, particularly with advanced metastatic prostate cancer, and my children were 9 and 13 at the time. And I remember Kirsten and I, my wife, stepped out of that reception into one of those, you know, long, white, soulless hospital corridors. Yeah. And I just remember sort of falling back against the wall and just going, fuck. <laughs> and then I just, re- I don't even remember, you know, that there was six floors up, getting down the lift and sort of walking through the car park. The next memory I have is just sitting in the car, the two of us just bawling just bawling our eyes out, yeah. just kind of going, what What do we do? And um, I guess it's only later that I've reflected, like, why do we handle the delivery of a diagnosis like that in this way? Why do we send people back out into the world with having just kind of given them PTSD, yeah. you know, um, with that, no tools to I, cope? I, I'm so sorry that that is how... Yeah that happened to you like yeah. I I've recently had you know experiences with orthopedic surgeons with my hip replacement and stuff mm. and mm. I've got to tell you man eye contact and empathy goes a long long way oh, 
in the yeah, medical yeah. profession. Like yeah. you, I understand why some doctors have to be disassociated. I understand, mm. like if you're if you're chopping people's bones up and you're mm. putting pins in and stuff, you've just got to be right. This mm. is just bits and pieces. This is not a human. Yeah. This is not a mother or a father or a son. This is just yeah. I've just got to do this. Get yeah. that right. Get the length right. So it great. I'm done. Because if they start yeah, thinking I mean, about yeah, it's too much. That's why doctors and, can't treat their own family members because they I had, can't yeah. have that emotional attachment, or they'll make. Uh, and I understand that, but the mm. the. The, you know, it's, it happens more now in the training, but there there are a there are this cohort of of medical professionals that kind of went into the world without that. And you know, from from my experience, watching the way my own parents did it, they're older people. My mum's mm. passed away, as I said. My dad's still around, but he doesn't practice. Mum always used to say that you know there is p- people have forgotten that there's magic in medicine. And when this is when mm. she went from a general practice to, they essentially got. And conglomerated by some gigantic health thing, and it went from just yeah. her and another doctor and receptionist to this fifty-eight person waiting room with seven treatment rooms, and them going, "All right, every six minutes, you need to see another patient for the bulk healing." She's like, "Yeah, I, yeah. and you need to learn how to use computers." I'm sixty-four. Mm. I can't. What the fuck? And yeah, she yeah. just like she would come home going, "I just this is not medicine. Medicine is mm. talking to someone and understanding their life, and yeah. it takes longer than I can't do this in six minutes." Um, but that's what she was, you know, faced with. And I remember asking my dad about it, a rheumatologist, and which is an autoimmune, can, you know, that no mm. cures. There's just lifestyle management, quality of life. I said, "How do you tell someone? How do you tell someone really bad news?" And he, he, I'll never forget it. And I've, I use it all the time in my own life. I said, well, normally I go and make a cup of tea. And I, how do you have a cup? I'm going to have a cup of tea. You like a cup of tea? I'd like a cup of tea. So it comes back in and bring a cup of tea. And they, so they're holding something warm. And then he, he, he says the words, this is what it is. And this is, you know, what it means. Mm. And then he said, you have to understand that these things happen. They're nobody's fault. And mm. the sooner that you can accept that it's happening, the sooner that we can all get about the business of making sure that you have a great life even though it's here. Yeah. Wow. I wish I'd and, seen him. Fuck, you know, right? <laughs> like it's not it's not mm. hard. Yeah. It's not hard. It's like 18 words, but mm. it could change. Like the fact that your doctor at the time just went, and your wife was in the room, bang, mm. hormone therapy, not even like, so we're about to shut off your testosterone. Yeah. Uh, that is going to basically, and I have been on antipsychotics, mate, so I mm. know what that's like. It's like yeah. that means that you could be standing at a pedestrian crossing as a, you know, completely faithful fit man, mm. a beautiful 21-year-old girl in a summer dress walks by, part of your body still goes, ooh, like it's still, you know, mm. and that's going to go and be turned yeah. off like a fucking light switch. And yeah. you are still going to have to maintain intimacy and the fact that your wife feels wanted mm. and but no, no there's conversation not even, around that. No, no counselling, no, nothing around oh. that. And even just the practical um, strategies that, yeah, might have allowed us to manage that better. I, I, I still get angry when I think about that. So, um, I'm so sorry that happened to you, mate. It's yeah, like, well, yeah. I mean, it's been, I guess it's been power, a powerful experience in a way because it's driven you know, the, the writing of the book. And I had a, mm. the head of urology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Hospital contact me and he said, I've told all my colleagues that they have to read your book before they prescribe hormone therapy to anyone. <laughs> Fuck yeah. So that was pretty, um, yeah, I thought that's pretty impactful. That's you know? a win, mate. That is an absolute mm. win. That is a direct line from what happened to you in that room mm. 
to what yeah. you clearly, you know, you wrote about the book. Mm. And that's a direct line from this is not okay to I've made a difference. So I'm, no matter how well the book sells, I'm thrilled yeah. that that's happened because you've yeah, now no, changed. As other men and other women and other partners of those men and, and women uh, who will be grateful that their doctor got told to do that. Was there much conversation about the effect of what kind of treatment you were about to undergo? Did you understand much about chemotherapy, radiation therapy? Um, not really. I mean, I was terrified by the idea of chemotherapy without having a sort of great sort of understanding of it, but I knew it was, it was poison and it would make my hair fall out and make me feel terrible. But it's interesting with prostate cancer, traditionally they would just do the hormone therapy initially and then they'd save chemotherapy once hormone therapy had failed but yeah. there'd been some recent research to suggest that early chemotherapy combined with hormone therapy would increase survival times by up to 14 months and at this stage you know when you're talking five or six years 14 months feels like a, a good little bonus you know yeah. Um, even though you're going to spend six months of that feeling like shit, you know. Yeah. Um, we went and got a second opinion from one of the leading authorities on prostate cancer in the country, and and she repeated the the opinion that I was a prime candidate for early chemo because I was young and what they termed chemo fit, you know, that I would tolerate it reasonably well. I mean, what a great thing to be, chemo fit. God. <laughs> Good on you for getting a second opinion and early on in your health journey, demonstrating mm. your advocacy for your own outcome. Not saying mm. that you know better, not saying that oh, I read Google, I know how to do this, but at least yeah, yeah. getting, understanding that, oh, my outcomes, I just want to be sure of this. And that's, mm. that's really important for people to hear. That's oh, super, absolutely. Super As is having another person in the room with you because, yeah. you know, they they say when you're getting news like that, you just switch off. You might retain 10% of the information, you know, like after the words, this confirms our suspicions, you know, I'm not quite sure how much more I absorbed after yeah. that, you know. Um, mate, in my, um, in my own experience, mate, the moment I started taking Audrey to meetings with doctors, uh, things mm. got started getting a lot better yeah. because you're exactly right. I just get muddled and, mm. you know, it was just, yeah, it's really, yeah. really, really important. It doesn't have to be your intimate partner, just to somebody no, else. Someone, mate, so, just, just someone else. Now, I'm guessing at the time you're, you don't, to surf waves that can potentially kill you, even like on a weekend, people mm. drown all the time. Unfortunately, mm. it happens and it's that's just being not quite fit enough for the conditions because yeah. you're dealing with sometimes, certainly in, you know, whether summer or winter, depending on what time, part of the country you're in, you're talking big swells. You could be held underwater for a long time. You've got to kind of stay pretty fit. I'm guessing you're a pretty fit person. Well, I kind of thought I was, but I think surfing can almost be a little bit misleading like that because it makes you feel so good. You know, you could surf two or three times a week and feel great, but if there wasn't surf, I didn't do much other exercise and right. I had a desk job at a computer. And I remember when I started going to Pilates, my instructor said, oh, you know, how long have you kind of been leading this fairly sedentary lifestyle? And I was like, sedentary? My lifestyle's not sedentary. I'm a surfer, damn it. But, um, you know, when I thought about it, yeah, sitting at a computer eight yeah. hours a day, you know, yeah. chasing deadlines and sweating on the next contributor check to turn up in the mail back when we got checks in the mail, you know. Yeah. 
I remember the first time I stood on a reform, I, I was a runner at that point. And the first first time I ever tried a reformer, I was on I was like 34, 35, fucking kicked my ass. But I was yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, how, what is kind of machine? I was invented by a German, of course. <laughs> Just like mm. brutal <laughs> things. Amazing yeah. piece of machinery. But damn, but yeah, it'll show good, up. Such good, um, such good physiotherapy. And yeah, it's been a big, big part of my big part of my self-care. So you obviously, I'm guessing like once, you know, if you're between you and, and, and your wife and you're kind of a health kind of focused mindset, once you got this diagnosis, you're like, right, what can I control? And yeah. that's it. The shopping list changes and the smoothies are made, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, um, Kirst did an amazing job sort of assembling a team for me, just sort of through her professional network, you know, found mm. me a a dietitian and uh, a physiotherapist and after about five attempts I found a psychologist who I liked you know it took me a while but that's another bit of advice I'd I'd share is don't be put off if your your first attempt at going to see a psychologist doesn't feel particularly helpful Tim, I you always know? talk about it like date. I talk about it like yeah. dating. I, I yeah, yeah, got a yeah, speed yeah. date oh, all the time. Like yeah. if you've got your mental health plan, which is I think now 20 sessions, which you can do a lot in 20 sessions. Yeah, yeah. Take take 10 minutes, 15 minutes on the phone. See if you vibe with them. Like you can mm. do telehealth. So you can talk to someone anywhere in the country if you want. Yeah. If it, It's okay if it doesn't work for you. Mm. It's all right. Other people yeah. will align with that person and that's fine. It's mm. You said number five. That's a good number. Like that yeah, means yeah. you've gone – no, I need more out of this. I'm about to get yeah. really intimate and need to trust this person. It's okay mm. to they and they're fine with it. They are so fine with it because they would yeah, rather yeah, someone yeah. they vibe with as well. Totally, totally. I'm and glad I you found this, someone. I have this great psychologist now, and um, oh look, I did a couple of things like meditation has been really key for me. I've done a bunch of, uh, I think I've done four Vipassana meditation retreats. Holy um, shit! I went to. Uh, this residential retreat down in Victoria run by a guy named Ian Gawler, the sort of noted cancer survivor, and he had, he had a huge influence on me. He's an amazing guy. He was told he had three months to live about 40 years ago. And, uh, wow. um, you know, one of the first things he taught me was he, he says, believe the diagnosis but not the prognosis. And so... You know, you've been given a diagnosis, but as he says, a prognosis is based on statistical averages that need not apply to you as a unique individual. And, you know, I came to understand that most cancer survival times, they form a kind of a a bell curve. So for prostate cancer, you know, small numbers of men might die sooner, but most men might die around the five or six year mark for metastatic prostate cancer. And then it sort of goes down but um, the thing that's really interesting is those graphs have a really long tail indicating very small numbers of men who live much longer you know 10 15 20 years yeah and so i was lucky one of the good things my oncologist said to me early on was explaining this bell curve and saying you know you want to be in the tail and i said well what what do we know about these men in the tail and unhelpfully he said well not much (laughs) And I said, well, don't you study them? And he said, well, no, it's kind of hard to do that sort of research retrospectively because people don't always accurately self-report what they've been doing kind of after the fact. 
and you know human memories of faulty witness and all that kind of thing and i just thought i don't know that's not really good enough like if there's men who are living 10 15 20 years surely we can learn from that and so that just became a real focus of mine as i said yeah. my kids were 9 and 13 at the time so i decided 10 years was my goal i wanted to try and live for 10 years and that seemed like a realistic goal to work towards just to see my kids to adulthood i guess yeah. was the the driver yeah and so now you've got that now you've got the you got the the, the why yeah. mm. what form does the how take how to stay healthy um yeah well i very early on i think being a writer i kind of like wordplay and stuff and you can easily get lost down these kind of wormholes on the internet and suffer a kind of information overload and so early on i kind of arrived at this little self-care mantra that tried to distill down all this information that i'd been processing and and that was the other thing i think as a journalist you get quite good at processing large amounts of information and then trying to distill it down in a way that's quite accessible and and easy to digest and so my self-care mantra became, I just need to take my meds, M-E-D-S, and that stands for meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. And they became the four pillars of my self-care. And I see you nodding very kind of knowingly because I imagine you, you've kind of embraced similar. Mate, I've um, got that. My, my M is there's meditation and medication. So there's two yeah, for yeah. my M. Yeah. It's funny because there was a couple of typos in the book and at one po- at one stage meditation got spelled as medication and I'm like no 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 it's meditation yeah, yeah. but it's but, but I mean, it's true it's yeah. it's ab- it's yeah. absolutely it's absolutely true and I I, yeah. I kind of talk about this when I when I speak on stage people they have an idea about what happens when you check into a psych ward and um, mm. Rosie Waterland she's been on the show she just she talked I said what's the first you know what's the first afternoon like in a psych ward she goes well the first thing they do is they make sure your meds are okay they make mm. sure they get you moving. They, there's an OT that comes around. They kind of help you. Uh, they give you like really good food because you're probably forgetting that you're eating properly or whatever. Mm. And then they make sure that you sl- – and their first week is basically that, yeah. making sure that your meds are right, that you're moving your body, that you're eating right, and that you're sleeping enough. Yeah. Why, why do we have to wait to go to a psych ward for that? Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> it should, should be, um, you know, life life skills we're yeah. all taught, really, you know. yeah. It's, yeah. Did you find taking a sense of agency around those things, like these are the things that I can control, did that give you a, you know, did that put some distance between you and the man who was in the hallway, you know, yeah, wondering what yeah, the fuck's going to happen? I mean, because it was really frustrating because I was basically given the message by the sort of medical mainstream that there was nothing I could do to improve my prognosis. You know, yeah. I remember going to see my GP and he said, there's no cure for this, don't go looking (laughs) Um, because they worry about people spending money on you know snake Uh, oil salesmen and all that kind of thing but still it's it's great i'm going to puerto rico to a retreat yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. and i've seen people do that or india or other places and it's ended horribly you know um so i knew that i didn't want to put all my faith in some kind of spurious alternative thing and that's one of my big i guess one of my big arguments is that that whole argument between mainstream and alternative or complementary medicine, I see as a false dichotomy, you know, as if we have to choose between them. Whereas I 
guess I try and take that slightly Buddhist approach that the answer is in the middle way. And, you know, so you need everything. You need everything at your disposal. And I wrote a, gr- I read a great book early on called um, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life, and I can never pronounce the author's name, um, David Servan Schreiber or something. Yeah. He was a medical researcher who diagnosed his own brain tumour right. when um, a, a research subject didn't turn up for a brain scan he was doing as part of his research, so he filled in and <laughs> diagnosed his own brain tumour but then kept himself alive for about 20 years with a combination wow. of mainstream and alternative medicine. He's no longer with us. He lived for 20 years, but he wow. eventually you know, succumbed to his um, disease. But he really influenced my thinking on this sort of integrative approach to cancer care, just having all the tools on the table. Where, so you're looking for the middle way. So there's a, there's mm. a line, but I'm, I'm sure it's like, you know, it's like when... When people are new parents for the first time mm. and they're flicking through Instagram and it says, well, if you don't have this, you're a bad parent because your baby needs, fuck, I need to buy this. Thing. You know, <laughs> if you are ripe for exploitation oh, from, so from all sides. So mm. how do you how do you find, okay, this is the stuff that the oncologists have told me I need to do and mm. there's enough of this stuff that also makes me feel like something is like, how do you find the line how do you mm. find what is worth it and not a waste of money, waste yeah. of time, waste yeah. of hope? Yeah. Well, it does. I mean, it does need to be evidence based. And I think, yeah, my journalistic training allowed me to do some of, you know, it's a really loaded term these days to say you're doing your own research. But I think as a journalist, you get a sense of what is a credible and a not so credible sort of resource. Yeah. And, you know, there was very clear evidence around exercise, for example, and mm-hmm. it was my naturopath who, you know, doctors are completely dismissive of who first alerted me to the research around exercise. No oncologist, no doctor had, had talked to me about exercise. And she said there's this incredible research around high-intensity interval training for men with metastatic prostate cancer, increasing survival times and um, mitigating the side effects of treatment. And no one had made me aware of it. Hang on. So the, the, you get, the, the idea of someone with stage four metastatic prostate cancer doing burpees yeah. is just out of my, it just that no one would put those two things together. No, it's kind of counterintuitive. And for a long time, we've thought, you know, cancer patients are frail. They need lots of bed rest. And it's the complete opposite. You know, there's incredible research going on. Edith Cowan University in Perth have a chemo ward with a gym next door. And people have chemotherapy and go straight into the gym um, because it helps mitigate the side effects of chemo and it actually improves the efficacy of the chemo. You know, so there are things like this. In my case with prostate cancer, hormone therapy, let's, um, let's list some of the side effects of hormone therapy. So complete loss of libido and sexual function, loss of bone density and muscle mass, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of diabetes, four times more likely to commit suicide and exercise helps address all those things and more. And as I say, if there was a drug that did for us what exercise does, they would be shouting it from the rooftops, you know? Yeah. And so I was lucky that I had a, I had a naturopath who was a former oncology nurse. So she had that medical background. Right. But she was right across 
the the, re- the latest research. And so that's all I needed. Like, tell me something to do and I'll do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just give me something to do. Having some agency in your own outcomes is so, so, so important. Yeah. And uh, but part of that, though, was like, whether it be the the journalistic background going, mm, mm. there's got to be a, there's, I just want to corroborate this source. Was, I want to hear this from someone else's mm. mouth to be sure that this thing happened before I print it. Mm. Um, that also led you to like, uh, I believe your first oncologist, you're like there's, there, there might be a different way here I'm going to see. Now, mm. it's one thing to s- swap doctors because um, you don't get on with them or you're not mm. thrilled by the way they're looking at you, but it's another thing to swap doctors because they've told you the facts and you don't want to accept them. Um, mm. But it sounds like what was happening with you was kind of more the former. Yeah, I look, I just, it was, a, it was a kind of gradual thing that I got a bit disillusioned with my first oncologist. He was, he was I've got no question about his expertise and his knowledge. Mm. It was just... It was that lack of empathy, you know, yeah. and it's interesting because people say, well, it's a self-protective thing that, you know, compassion fatigue is real and, you know, doctors can't be emotionally invested in every patient. But if it's a self-protective thing, it's it's not working because oncologists <laughs> have a terrible mental yeah. health profile themselves. And so, you know, I suggest that they might be better off if they allowed themselves a normal range of human emotions and some genuine human empathy because the the protective thing ain't, ain't working for you. you know? Reading your work, it did make me think about, because you talk, you talk about that in your book, you mm. talk about that, and it's there's a huge amount of empathy as well that you've even written that. You've mm. written, you write about how not only is cancer diagnosis and treatment just devastating on the patient and their family, but also every doctor and nurse and every healthcare professional that comes into contact with them, you're literally dealing with people who are on death's door, some of them children, yeah. all fucking day, yeah. every day. And then you're going to go home and what? Put dinner on and mm. deal with your 15-year-old who doesn't want to put the iPad down? Jesus. Yeah. Like, I, I, and I, I thought about this as a mate, somebody I, somebody I know, they, they work with kids who've been, who are going through trauma. Mm. Like, they are, they are, they are a part of, you know, the mm. immediate treatment plan of, of trauma. Yeah. They do two days a week mm. because anymore, and they yeah. cannot, they cannot mm. be good at their job because they have to be there with the kid. Mm. They have to be present in that moment with the kid. Yeah. But the economics of an oncologist holding an office with thousands of dollars a month in rent, employing mm. staff, they got to keep the patients coming through the door yeah, to yeah. pay for it all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you, my average oncology visit would be five or ten minutes, you know. God damn. And it's my life hanging in the balance, you know. <sighs> and so, yeah, I talk about in the book this one particular appointment where I'd sat in the waiting room for an hour, you know, you're yeah. surrounded by people who look very frail and ill and it's not a great atmosphere and uh you know i'd had another five or ten minute appointment where he looked at my blood test and gone yeah keep taking this drug and i'll see you in six weeks and i got up to leave and i stopped and i turned around and i said look i've been working really hard at this you know i've been seeing you for four years you know i meditate twice a day i exercise daily i try and eat a plant-based diet how do you think i'm doing just to kind of give him the opportunity to offer me some encouragement. And he stopped and he seemed a bit annoyed because this was this sort of (laughs) off script moment and he had a waiting room full of patients. Yeah. He thought about it and he eventually went, you're about average. Some of my patients are doing better, some worse, you're about average. 
went, okay, right. And uh, talk about the fact that he had this one of those motivational prints on the wall of his waiting no. room saying, um, trust your instincts. <laughs> so I walked out of that appointment and I took that advice and I trusted my instincts and I never went back. Yeah. Oh, mate, I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, Yeah, bedside manner is, uh, like I said, my mum would always say, it's like that's that's half of the medicine because you've got to have the you've got to have the patient believe that the treatment will work because that is Mm. such a huge part of getting better is the belief in that the treatment Mm. will work. This is why people who knowingly take a placebo for chronic back pain experience some pain relief. Yeah, because they believe it's. Brains are amazing things, and that yeah, is a yeah. part of the medicine delivery of the medical message. Mm. Um, but I'm guessing you found a better person. Yeah, I did. And look, in fairness, you know, I mean, one of the challenges in in advanced, well, most advanced cancers is there's no cure, yeah. and so oncologists are walking this tightrope between some sort of palliative benefit that might extend life or reduce suffering or improve quality of life, and an excess toxicity that's going to tip you over into a, just a more miserable existence mm. for whatever time you have left. And that's a difficult, difficult line yeah. to walk. That's a difficult yeah. line to live as a patient, but, you know, it's a difficult thing to have to administer. And, and yeah. they're really inadequately equipped for most of the cases they see because they can't offer hope or a cure, which yeah. makes that bedside manner, I think, even more critical you know, to be able to offer some yeah. sort of emotional sort of comfort. Which is wild because you're thinking about a diagnosis that, uh, you know, it's not a one-doc job. You know, if mm. you get, I don't know, if you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, mm. you're getting a nutritionist, an exercise person, like you're getting yeah. this whole team just yeah. boom. Like it makes no sense to me that in that moment mm. of it confirms our suspicions, here are the best three psychologists that I've mm. known around this. Here is an expert. Sort of yeah. You know, this is the, the kind of people you need to talk to as a couple about going through, mm. you know, therapy because this is not a one-person illness. And, you know, in that moment, because it's not just the nuts and bolts and the cells that are affected by yeah. this at all. It is you are living with mm. essentially this you know we all know like nobody gets out of this alive but yeah this is like this your clock is well and truly ticking yeah your whole um, world has been kind of tipped upside down and out. yeah look some places do it better than others i think some of the big specialist cancer hospitals chris o'brien lifehouse in sydney and peter mccallum in melbourne and 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 god bless her olivia newton john's uh wellness center at the austin hospital you know they do embrace complementary therapies and you know, supportive care, but I think at the average bit general hospital with a oncology ward, you know, they're maybe not as as equipped to offer those sorts of therapies. What would you say? To, not everyone's going to get a, a cancer diagnosis, but surely mm. everybody listening at some point is going to have to advocate for themselves as a patient. What would you say to people about uh, having that kind of advocacy for your own health outcomes and ways to go about it that don't put people kind of like mm, you don't. Know, no more than me. What are you telling me to do? Like, yeah, what would you yeah. say? What's a mindset that people might be able to have? Well, I just going think if, if you can't afford to be sort of put off by that skewed power dynamic because it does mm. feel really intimidating. You know, you're sitting on the other side of this broad desk with someone with lots of framed certificates on their wall, and you know, a lot of them have a very sort of cool, professional manner, and it's kind of like, who am I to question your judgment? But if things don't feel okay, 
you've really got to speak up and you can't worry about being considered a bad patient or a difficult patient. You know, be a difficult patient would be my advice, you know, (laughs) that you, yeah, you have to advocate for yourself or you have to find people who are able to advocate for you and seek second opinions and like the psychologists, you know, not most, most people probably wouldn't go shopping for their oncologist, but if you're not getting what you need, then, you know, do go see another oncologist for a second opinion. So just a moment away from Tim Baker, because I I do need to play some ads to keep the lights on here at uh, OG Podcast Headquarters. This show costs money to make. There's wonderful professional people that help me make this show, and I I do like to pay them the money they're worth because they're freaking, they're the best in the country. If you'd like to help out and help the show, patreon.com slash osher. I said, if you want to connect with me and connect with others who listen to the show, as I said, you can find us on Discord. The link is there in the show notes. If, and if you really want to help this show, the, one of the very best things you can do is just tell a friend, tell someone, share the episode, text the, a link to the episode, send a DM, a screen grab, carry a pigeon, whatever. If there's someone that you know that needs to hear this, let them know. All right. I promise you ads. Here's some ads. Or not. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What would you say to people listening about, and this is a, I understand this is a heavy question to ask someone in your position, but what would Mm. you say to people listening about the concept of acceptance around all that yeah oh that's been a huge part of my journey and it was an absolute turning point really in my way of responding and managing the diagnosis because I realized probably a few years in maybe three years in that if survival was my only goal then I was always going to be sweating on every blood test and every scan and I just couldn't see how any peace lay down that path And so I guess I just had this realisation and I'd done a a bit of reading, a few kind of Buddhist texts that really helped me. No Death, No Fear by Tikhanahan and uh, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron were both very um, influential in my thinking. That if I could accept my mortality or if I could work on accepting my mortality, that that was something within my power. And, um, you know, 
Buddhism teaches us that our life's work is to prepare for death and a cancer diagnosis is like a, a bit of a wake-up call because for most of us, it's the homework we put off until the last minute until we're kind of confronted with it and a, a cancer diagnosis is like a, a, a wake-up call to do your homework. And so in a lot of ways, this book was about me doing my homework and yeah. I would meditate on death. I would, I would try and imagine what it felt like. And I remember being at one of those Ian Gawler retreats in Victoria and there was a young guy who was just horribly pockmarked all over from really aggressive chemotherapy and he had a bag and he was he you could see he had been a young fit surfer and I learned from talking to him a keen skateboarder he still had that physique beneath this ravaged exterior but he was the most zen meditator I'd ever come across he was like one of those statues of buddha when he sat yeah and he said to me you know I'm really curious about death. I think it's going to be this amazing adventure because he was considered terminal at that stage. And he he just had managed to frame it as an adventure that he was curious about. And I just was in awe of him at the time. But it's something that I guess I've tried to work, work on. You know, I'd mm. say that if the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die and I'm okay with that, then I'm okay. And sure, I want to live as long as I can and live well, but I don't want to be in fear of death. And the other thing Ian Gawler said that was really influential was an acceptance of our mortality is entirely compatible with a will to live. And um, I think that's a really powerful statement. And so I've, yeah, I've sort of tried to kind of live by that. Once you... Once you fully, and I'm sure if, you know, my, in my own experience, there's a grieving process around acceptance mm, and that's totally, it's important to go through. Mm. But once you do find yourself at the end of it, settled into that acceptance, what then mm. does taking action do for you? Whether that be taking action, eating well, taking action, yeah. connecting as meaningfully as you can with your kids. Mm. What does that action then do for you? Well, I mean, you just feel good for a start. You know, exercise and diet and nutrition are just, you know, they're so fundamental to our experience of being human. So that was quite a, a revelation. I mean, you know, ironically, people would say to me, oh, you know, I hear you've been really ill. And I'd kind of go, well, yeah, apparently, but I feel fucking great, you know, because <laughs> I was eating so well and I was exercising. I, I dropped about 15 kilos. Wow. Because um, I, was, I was just going to the gym and eating really clean. And, you know, at age 50, I kind of got acquainted with my abdominal muscles for the first time in my life, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it was this, this strange kind of thing to actually be told. I was facing this really dire health crisis, but I felt fantastic and that was incredibly reassuring that that's sort of where i drew my strength like yeah i know i know the diagnosis as ian gall has counseled me i don't accept the prognosis and yeah. right here right now i feel great i feel strong when i meditate when i surf when i exercise when i eat well i just don't feel like there is room for disease in my body there's a, there's a great character um, who I once interviewed named Dorian Doc Pasquitz, this old surfing medico in California, 
And he's written a book called Surfing in Health. And I can't remember the exact quote, but he was saying something like, health is more than the absence of disease. It is this feeling of vigor and vitality that we can achieve by working on it every day. And um, I really took that to heart as well, you know, that health was more than the absence of disease, that it was cultivating this state of, yeah, vigor and pizzazz, I think was one of the yeah. words he used, you know. When it comes to, when it comes to like, you're, it's not just about you. It's about, you know, your wife and your kids. You've clearly had the conversation with them about what's going on. They're yeah. obviously still pretty, one of them still pretty young, but they're mm. obviously dealing with, when you do come into that acceptance, what does that acceptance then give you the freedom to do? Just be really present, you know, wake up each day and, you know, you can't afford to be projecting into the future too much because it's just going to, you know, you're just going to start grinding your gears and getting caught in catastrophizing. And, um, but I can wake up and I can go surfing and I can spend time with my kids and I can write. And yeah, there's so much that I can still do. And, and in lots of ways, you know, probably I'm healthier now than I was before my diagnosis, you know, yeah. in, a, in an odd kind of way. And the other thing Ian Gawler taught me was, you know, if you're not trying to hold death at bay with one hand and then trying to manage your health with the other hand, you can manage your health with both hands, you know, because <laughs> you're not using one hand just to fend off your fear yeah. of death. Which is this um, idea that, you know, you're we're sitting here talking right now and mm. you are probably closing in on the five years that they gave you. Oh, well past, uh, yeah. Yeah, Seven. okay, so you're, pa yeah. you're past, the, the clock's already ticked to zero. We're into the, like, beyond times now. Bonus time, what can, yeah. What, what, what can you tell, you're in bonus, the bonus mm. bonus hour, what can you tell people about holding this idea of uh, at any moment this could just turn horribly and there's nothing I can do about it mm. and what a beautiful day it is. Look at the smile on the kid's <laughs> face. Like, these are two very difficult things to hold on mm. to at the same time, but mm. it's something you've clearly had to learn how to do. What can you talk to us? Can you tell me about, you know, what that, mm. tell people about what that is? Yeah, it is very much about being present. And I think meditation is probably the most powerful tool for that because I know that I can sit and I can focus on my nostrils and mm. I can just drop into a place that is still and quiet and peaceful where I'm not a cancer patient and I'm, I'm not thinking about the oncology ward and the next treatment and I've got this sort of sanctuary that I can retreat to at any time and then I, from there I can move out into the world and just embrace all its joys and, you know, I don't, I don't want to give a false impression. I still have dark days, you know. Yeah. I still lie awake at 3 a.m. sometimes going, what the fuck, this was not the plan you know, yeah. um, and there's been huge, yeah, grief and trauma along the way. But, um, yeah, I feel like I can be fully present and I paddle out into the ocean some days. And, you know, when I think about the theme of your podcast, Better Than Yesterday, you know, surfing is the ultimate sort of example because you can wake up every morning hoping that the surf was will be better than yesterday, you know. And you go, and I walk to the beach and I, I gaze out at that sort of dawn seascape and try and discern what the waves are doing. And I could have one of the best waves of my life today or tomorrow yeah. or the next day, you know. It's, it's, it's like cricket, like, oh, next ball, 
next yeah, ball is yeah. going to be the one. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's like yeah. it, you're you're absolutely right. Mm. We sp- we spoke a little about the language surrounding cancer, yeah. and f- for many people, this is still a bit of a mystery. Mm. What what do you wish was said to you, or what's some words that you might care to give us now that we might be able to say to people? in our lives, who we will know someone who will get diagnosed over the course of mm. our lives. What are some words that that would be effective? What's some ways that we can talk about it rather than avoiding it? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it does come back to that acceptance of mortality. Like we're so clumsy as a society in talking about and dealing with death, you know. Mm. Like we don't, most of us don't have an experience of seeing a loved one after they've passed or sitting with them after they've passed you know it's sort of we've kind of um subcontracted it out to professionals to just keep all the unpleasantness away from us and so i think if as a culture and a society we could become more accepting about the inevitability of our death you know as someone said it's life is like getting on a ship and sailing out to sea knowing that it's going to sink but we (laughs) are You know, we all act with shock. Oh, no, this boat's sinking. It's like, yeah, no fucking kidding, it's sinking. They're all going to sink, you know. Oh, that's so true. Um, that's so true. So what, what are some words that we might yeah. say if, you know, we find out that a relative's been diagnosed, mm. we call call them up, yeah. what do we say? Um, say, I'm, I'm here for you. You know, there's so much we can do. There's so much we can do to support you and that you can do to support your health. And there's so much we can do to just suck the marrow from life in the meantime. Let's fucking plan a surf trip or let's get the band back together or, you know, like just um, live fully. And, you know, what do you you want from me? What do you need? Or not even ask questions. Just I'm going to come around with a really healthy meal. And um, or I had a friend diagnosed with a brain tumour and I just started going over and sitting with him and teaching him to meditate. And I felt like that was the greatest gift I could give him at that time and get him juicing and eating well. And yeah, um, he recently died, but none of that was in vain. You know, we had such precious moments together and maybe it bought him a bit more time, you know, with his family. Uh, but he was, he was incredibly inspired and and it lifted him out of just feeling you know a victim and as you say gave him some agency so if you can give people just even one tool it's like my naturopath talked to me about exercise you know you don't have to have all the answers but if you can offer one thing like let's Mm. get in the ocean let's just go for a body surf or yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna start cooking you a healthy meal once a week or let's sit and meditate or, you know, just be all in, you know, don't keep your distance. That's the other thing I'm really big on. You know, people sometimes keep their distance after you get a cancer Mm. diagnosis and that sense of social isolation is one of the worst aspects of it. And I've got a couple of really good mates who made it really clear really early on that they didn't care how messy I was you know, how unraveled I was, whatever kind of emotional state they found me in, that they were going to be able to sit with it and hold space. And I got one great mate who would just, we had a little um, sort of mayday call. If I 
if I texted him the dancing man emoji, the little John Travolta emoji, yeah. that meant I needed him and he'd, he'd yeah, come right. over and just sit with me, talk to me and just be one of those mates who can, yeah. who can sit in those uncomfortable moments. That's, that's probably the most powerful thing. It's extraordinary that you've been so generous with sharing your story because so yeah. you mentioned a couple of really quite high profile, super surviving, you know, mm. can cancer, you know, kind mm. of pr- identities, I yeah, guess. Yeah. But we have to be in acceptance that that is the long tail that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. That is the yeah. the kind of the, ano- the anomaly. Yeah, yeah. And whereas what you're describing is something that we don't often hear, like, yes, mm. it is happening mm. and every day is as good as I can fucking make it. Yeah. And I think that's a really ex- very powerful thing to be sharing and it's something that's really important for our community and the empathy that you have for the healthcare professionals who yeah. literally spend every day telling people they're going to die yeah. is really such a toll on them as well mm. and that just bringing to light that more needs to be done yeah, well, for we, the yeah. people as well who are in this industry. You've got to heal the healers, mate, you know? <laughs> Yeah. There's a chapter in my book called Physician Heal Thyself, which is a, <laughs> is a quote from somewhere that I couldn't actually find the origins of, but it, had, it was one of those phrases that had stuck in my mind. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty apt. I could I could talk to you for a long time, but uh, <laughs> you know, you've, it's a beautiful day and I don't want you to miss it. So yeah. um, thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for writing this extraordinary book. Um, you're not McFanning. You're not punching it. You're patting it. Patting it. You're patting, yeah. you're patting well, the that, shark. That was the big lesson. Yeah, I'm not going to just be fighting this thing the rest of my life. I'm going to make my peace with it and swim about the ocean without fear. Yeah. It's beautiful, man. It's a beautiful yeah. metaphor, and I'm really grateful for your time, mate. Thank you so Thanks, much for talking to me, mate. It's a gr- great pleasure. And that was Tim Baker. His book, Patting the Shark, is out now. The link is in the show notes. Do let me know what you thought. Jump on Discord. Let me know what you thought. I'd love to know, was it helpful to understand? Or if you've been through what Tim's going through with uh, either yourself or somebody you know, would that mindset have been helpful when you were sick? Let's start talking about it. Jump in Discord. We can all have a chat about it. I'm really excited. The conversations there have been great so far. Big thanks to everyone that helped me make this episode. Toe Hider on the music. Uh, find him on Spotify and Twitch. Bree Steele on all the research and support. Andy Ma on all the post-production, audio and video. And of course, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. I'll see you Wednesday. We are going to revisit our time chatting with the one and only Bo Ryan. It's going to be great. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.